Today's scripture comes from Matthew uh, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as, as, many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome once again to NCF and the Special Fathers. Happy Father's Day for those of you in here as you celebrate uh, God's blessing upon your life with your wife and your children. We hope and pray that today will be especially uh, encouraging and uh, wonderful to you. And of course, that's so fitting that it falls on the Lord's Day because every time we gather together with God's people, we're here to give praise and honor to our Heavenly Father where we acknowledge his goodness every single day of our lives. So we especially also want to welcome those of you who might be visiting us for the first time or for those of you considering the claims of Christianity. If you're someone who is investigating the Christian faith or you are wondering about what Christianity is all about, I hope and pray that our time together will not only answer those questions but even stimulate to ask more to the point where you would even consider Jesus' claim as being the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul. Without further ado, would you now bow your heads with me and join me in prayer as we ask for God's blessing. Father, we ask that you would now speak to us as we prepare to sit under your word. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful and just, and that in your justness you ensured that we would be forgiven of our sins to those who would claim your son as our savior. And so, Lord Jesus, teach us yet again of the wonderful, marvelous truths of your gospel so that we would leave this place different than the way we came in, that we would be more like your son and therefore be a source of blessing to those around us. Oh God, we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So, uh, one of my favorite movies from the 1980s, which is still considered a cult classic to this day, is this one, The Princess Bride. Now, for those of you who have not seen it, I'm sorry to say I have no idea how to explain uh, the synopsis of this movie because it really goes beyond really the normal descriptions of movie genres. This is one of the most confusing yet most entertaining movies that Hollywood has ever made. Think of a mixture between comedy, drama, family, fantasy, all rolled up into one. It's really an entertaining movie, maybe something that you can watch uh, with your family later this evening. But 
One of the things that make this movie so entertaining are the characters. The characters are so eccentric, they're so flamboyant, they're so odd that you just can't help but just be entertained by them. Case in point, there's one character, a short, stocky, bald man by the name of Vassini, and he basically is a criminal. He's a career criminal who goes about murdering, kidnapping, extorting people left and right. And one of the things about Vassini that's so odd is that every other word that comes out of his mouth is inconceivable whatever situation he finds himself in whatever circumstances he has to face he can somehow creatively find some way to say the word inconceivable right in fact it gets so nauseating annoying that another character his partner in crime a spaniard who's also a very masterful swordsman a man by the name of inigo montoya says you keep using that word i don't think it means what you think it means right you keep using that word i don't think it means what you think that it means now of course using the word inconceivable when you don't know what it means is really quite harmless therefore making it entertaining in a movie but did you know that there are some words that people constantly use and yet they don't know what it means and because that is so it is very dangerous and causes tremendous tremendous destruction in fact there are there is one particular word that I'm thinking about this morning that Christians are notorious in using over and over all their time in their Christian vocabulary amongst Christians that they constantly use and yet have no idea what it really means. And as a result, it causes such trauma, such pain than what is necessary and what is called for. What word am I thinking of? I'm thinking of the word forgiveness. Forgiveness. So many of you in here think you know what that word means when in fact you don't. And when you use it all the time in wrong context, you are potentially causing damage within the Christian community. Now, some of you might take quite offense to that idea. You might be thinking to yourself, Pastor, what are you talking about? I grew up going to church. I learned about forgiveness. I know exactly what that word means. Well, I'm sorry to say I'm highly doubtful of that. And I don't just say that because of me. I say that because that's what Jesus says. Jesus is aware that his disciples, not only his original, but maybe future on, may not really know this word that so easily comes off their lips. And so he finds it necessary to teach them about what it really means when you say the word forgiveness. And so as we continue our series through the parables of Jesus, he is going to teach us a parable that helps us understand what forgiveness really is so that when you and I use this word, in the context of our fellowship, we really know what it really means, thereby avoiding the damage and destruction that can come when we misuse it, but instead bring real healing and transformation when we do. So with that in mind, four things, four things for today, four things I'd like to share with you as Jesus teaches us about the principles of forgiveness so that we properly understand it. Number one, the unavoidable reality of forgiveness. Number two, the legitimate grievances behind forgiveness. Number three, the delusion in not forgiving. And number four, the purpose for forgiveness, okay? The unavoidable reality, the legitimate grievances, the delusion in not forgiving, and then the purpose for forgiveness. Let's jump right in. First, the unavoidable reality of forgiveness. A few years back, I came across an interesting website entitled forgivenessweb.com. And basically, it's an online bulletin board where people can just write in random confessions of sins anonymously, I might add, to people that they have hurt, people they have wounded, people they have sinned against. And one particular entry caught my attention, and I thought I would read it to you this morning. It started off like this, to Joe. 
I want you to know how much you mean to me and how much I care and love you. I want to tell you I'm sorry for behaving like a child when I don't get my way, not listening when you speak to me, interpreting things my way and not looking at things from your point of view also. All those nasty, stinging words that I've said just to hurt you, my downward spiral that led to brief adulterous affairs with other men, the horrible way I walked out on you, all the awful things I did after we split up, I am truly sorry. I am slowly forgiving myself for all these mistakes and ask that you consider, reconsider our lives together. Will you? Can you? Now, there are thousands upon thousands, maybe even borderline millions of entries that are just like this. And just by the sheer number of it all, what does that tell us? Does it not tell us that as long as you live on this earth, as long as you walk in this world, there is the inevitability and therefore the unavoidability of needing to forgive? Isn't this telling us that at some point you will be confronted with the fact that you will be asked by somebody who wronged you for you to forgive them? And indeed, that is what our passage teaches us. As we take a look at this interaction where Jesus and Peter are having a conversation. Here, Peter begins this discussion with a question of Jesus, starting in verse 21. Listen to what he says there in a form of a question to Jesus. He says this, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, just in case you didn't pick up on it, our old buddy Peter is trying to show off in front of Jesus. He's trying to kind of impress Jesus. How do I know this? Well, here's the thing. Back during this time, there was this unspoken rule that for a person to forgive someone up to three times was considered especially generous, thereby characterizing that person as someone who was of the rare spiritual type, someone who was especially righteous, incredibly godly. For a person who is willing to forgive someone up to three offensive, man, that is quite a set-apart person, someone who's super godly, super righteous. And here is Peter basically trying to promote himself in front of Jesus by saying, hey, Jesus, don't you admire me that I'm willing to double that, thereby making me even more godly, more impressive, therefore more lovable in your eyes, right? Peter is trying to, in the form of a question, indirectly promote himself in front of Jesus by saying, I'm willing to go above and beyond and even those rare super righteous people. What do you think, Jesus? And then without even blinking, without even flinching, Jesus responds by saying this, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Turns out Jesus is not impressed with Peter at all. But basically he's saying, look, if you think seven is setting the bar, let me set it even higher, Peter. You need to be willing to forgive people up to 77 times. Now, just so you don't misunderstand, all the Bible scholars here are unanimous in terms of what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not wanting us to take him literally here. He is not saying that you should forgive people literally up to 77 times, as if to imply that if a person sins against you the 78th time, you can legitimately say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't forgive you. You've reached the maximum quota of forgiveness. This is Jesus's orders. I can't disobey him. Sorry, you're out of luck. I don't forgive you. That is not what he's saying at all. Jesus is using hyperbolic language. He's using extravagant words, kind of out of character words to really emphasize a single point. And that point is when it comes to the limits that you should have in terms of how often you should forgive, Jesus is saying there is no limit. 
There is no limit. You should give people an infinite number of opportunities and chances for people to ask for forgiveness once they sin against you. Now, by saying it that way, that sounds crazy. That sounds incredible. And yet it verifies, does it not, what we are saying here? And that is, according to Jesus, you will need to forgive people constantly. I mean, that 77 is an indication that you're going to be doing a lot of forgiving as you live on this earth. Because Jesus is trying to say, it's not a matter of if you will ever need to forgive people in your life, but it's when. Why? Because you and I live in a broken world filled with broken people to where the inevitable outcome in all your relational interaction or even in the strange random encounters you have with people may necessitate and will necessitate your need to forgive. And this is something that I feel like we really need to grasp because I'll be honest with you, I struggle with forgiveness and I know many of you, if not all of you do. Why? Because all of us in here carry this assumption that the, the need to forgive or the, re, the requirement to forgive others is an anomaly. It's something that shouldn't be happening. It, it's like getting struck by lightning twice on the same location within minutes of each other. It just shouldn't happen. It should be so random, right? It, it, it should be less than winning the lottery, so to speak. And as a result, whenever we're confronted with a situation where someone is asking genuinely for our forgiveness, we get so frustrated and we get so agitated and we're so reluctant. Why? Because we're not prepared. We're not prepared because we don't carry this expectation that this is a genuine reality of life where you and I will need to frequently forgive the people in our lives. And so Jesus is saying, you need to assume that you will need to forgive. As much as you assume the sun will come up tomorrow morning and therefore prepare for that day, you need to also equally, if not more, assume that you will have to forgive people in your life and therefore you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. And so Jesus wants to teach us how to prepare ourselves when the inevitable time comes where you will need to forgive. And he does so by telling an interesting story of a king and two of his servants and the various interactions between these three characters so let's take a look at the first interaction between these two servants the interaction between one servant to the other and to extrapolate let me go to my next point the legitimate grievances behind forgiveness let's skip down to the middle of our passage where for starting in verse 28 we read as follows but when that same servant went out he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Now, because we're coming at the story in the middle of it, let me back up and give a quick summary of the verses that we just skipped, verses 23 to 27. Our parable begins with a king summoning his servants so that he could settle financial accounts with them. One of these servants happened to be one who was owed money as well. He was owed a hundred denarii by a fellow servant, another servant of this king. And how much did this other fellow servant owe this servant? 100 denarii, which, if you're not aware, is amount to three months' uh, pay, three months' salary, basically the amount of money that the average Israelite would make in three months. But here's the thing. It turns out that this servant who was owed 100 denarii, he too owed money 
not to another servant, but to the king himself. And how much did he owe the king? It says 10,000 talents. Now I know you in here, that means nothing. Like what, what in the world is a talent, right? But let me tell you what Bible scholars tell us. According to New Testament scholars, 10,000 talents is the equivalent, and I'm not joking when I say this, 193,000 years worth of wages. 193,000 years of wages. That's what Jesus is saying here. Again, he's using hyperbole. He's using exaggerated language. And the point that Jesus is trying to make through this character is simply this guy owed money to the king that he didn't have enough years left on earth to pay off. He was simply beyond his ability to pay. And yet what does this servant have the audacity to do? Does he say, forgive me? He just says, give me more time. Give me more time and I will pay off this debt that I possibly cannot with the remaining years of my life. I mean, what a slap in the face. How would you think a king should respond to such an audacious servant? If anything, he should just throw him in prison or maybe even execute him right then and there with speaking with such disrespect. And yet the king doesn't do that. Jesus goes on to say that the king does something so extravagant, so amazing, so scandalous that it's so unheard of. What does the king do? He says, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and forgive the debt. You're free to go. You are completely free. Don't worry about it. There is no interest. There is nothing. You don't owe anything to me. You're free to go. Now go, right? So that's verses 23 to 27. Now we're at the passage we're looking at, starting in verse 28, where this same forgiven servant goes out. He's celebrating. He leaves the king's palace rejoicing at the fact that his his debt has been forgiven and in the midst of his celebration he runs into this fellow servant who owed him money and what does he do in verse 28 read again and seizing him he began to choke him saying pay what you owe now in every story there's a good guy and there's a bad guy and clearly just by these actions alone this servant who's choking the other one he's the bad guy right which Jesus verifies in verse 32 by referring to him as the wicked servant, right? But with that in mind, we do have to be careful that we don't misunderstand why this servant is wicked and why he is not. Let me explain. Go back to verse 29 and pay special attention to how this fellow servant responds to the wicked servant's demand for money back. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Notice what the fellow servant doesn't say. He doesn't say, how dare you ask me to give you back your money? Or he doesn't say, how could you ask for me to pay you back the money that is rightfully yours? No. Instead, he says, look, I realize I have wronged you. I'm going to make things right. Please give me the chance. What is this fellow servant doing? He's recognizing the legitimate grievance that this wicked servant has against him. You see, when most people read this interaction between these two servants, they assume that this servant is wicked because he's demanding to get his money back. But that's actually not what it says. In fact, just by the way that the fellow servant is speaking, he's verifying, he's acknowledging that this wicked servant has a legitimate right and a legitimate claim to call him out by saying, give me back the money you owe. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is that this servant is wicked, but he is not wicked for asking for his money back. So what does that mean? It means that when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to issues of getting things back, there is this idea of legitimate grievances. There is this genuine idea that you are entitled, you have the right 
to call people out when they genuinely wrong you. And this is something that I feel like we really need to get. Because for many of you, you have been taught that biblical forgiveness means that you no longer have any right to have any sort of legitimate grievances against the people who wrong you or sin against you. In other words, people assume that because God freely forgave you and no longer holds you responsible, that as a Christian, you no longer have the right to call anyone else out, to hold them responsible for how they sin against you. In other words, it's this idea that once you accept God's forgiveness and become a Christian, you therefore forfeit your right, right, to hold people accountable, right, and to have legitimate grievances when they wrong you or when they sin against you. Now, If that's what you were taught, if you were taught that once you become a Christian, you no longer have the right to have any sort of legitimate grievances against anyone, to call people out or hold them accountable, hear the next words coming out of my mouth correctly, right carefully, excuse me. You were not taught correctly when it comes to forgiveness. When it comes to biblical forgiveness, it does not mean that you have to therefore forfeit your right to call people out on legitimate grievances of when they wrong you or sin against you and i cannot tell you how many people have been taught this and they have suffered tremendously because of it case in point i think about one woman i knew back in college where she shared in a testimony from seven to the day she left for school for college her father sexually abused her meanwhile her mom knowing all this turning a blind eye she becomes a christian in college and then before she feels emboldened to confront her parents and she does you know what happens her mother starts yelling at her, starts cursing her out, right? And basically says to her, why can't you just forget the past? Why can't you just forgive your father? Aren't you supposed to be a Christian? She would ask that question over and over. Aren't you supposed to be a Christian? What is that mom saying to her daughter by saying or asking that question? Is it not this idea That once you become a Christian, you no longer have any right. You have forfeited all rights, right? To have anyone be held accountable for whatever sins they have done against you. Hear me when I say this. Real biblical forgiveness assumes the right to hold legitimate grievances against people. Let me say that again. Real biblical forgiveness assumes the legitimate right that you have to call people out and hold them accountable for legitimate sins that they commit against you. Why? Because what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is where you give up your right, your legitimate right to hold someone accountable. That's what forgiveness is. It's where you give up your right to legitimately hold someone accountable for their sins. How can you freely forgive someone if you don't even have that right in the first place, right? The answer is you can't. You cannot forgive someone if they are not willing to recognize and acknowledge the legitimate ways in which they have wronged you, sinned against you, and harmed you. Which means, if there's a person in your life who has wronged you, they sinned against you, and they're never willing to acknowledge it in the form of an apology, in the form of a confession, in the form of asking for forgiveness, you cannot forgive them. And when I say you cannot forgive them, I don't mean you shouldn't forgive them, right? but that you're not able to forgive them. As much as you want to, as much as you want to extend, you cannot, you're not able to forgive that person because true forgiveness is conditioned on the person who offended you being held accountable 
for the sins and the wrongs that they have done against you, the legitimate grievances that you have against them. That's what real biblical forgiveness is. It is conditional on that way. Now, with that said, however, we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to take what I just said to an extreme. Because even though we may have legitimate grievances against the people who wrong us, Jesus wants to make sure that we never ever use that as an excuse to never extend forgiveness when the person who wrongs us asks for our forgiveness. And to further explain, let me go to my next point, the delusion in not forgiving. Let's read again the second interaction between the king and the wicked servant, starting in verse 31, and it reads, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here's what's going on. The king somehow, someway finds out that this servant whom he just forgiven, this incredible debt just moments ago, refused to forgive another one of his servants, a fellow servant of this guy, this wicked servant, right? And so how does the king react? Verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him, the wicked servant, to jailers until he should pay his debt. Now, remember what I said just a moment ago. This wicked servant owed the king so much money that he had no way of being able to possibly paying it off, okay? Which means by putting this guy in prison until he could pay it off meant that he was never going to leave prison. Here's the question. Why is this king all of a sudden this angry, this upset, this filled with fury and wrath if what I just said a moment ago is true, that this wicked servant had legitimate grievances, right, against this fellow servant? Well, the king actually tells us in his own words in verse 32, he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. The first words coming out of the king's mouth when this servant is put before him is these words. Why? Why does he emphasize this idea that I forgave you all that debt? Here's why. One of the temptations that you are faced with when someone asks you for forgiveness is to say, no, I don't want to forgive you. And the reason why you don't want to forgive them is because you carry this conclusion. I can't believe you did what you did to me. I can't believe you were that vicious, that cruel, that unkind. And furthermore, I can't believe that you could ask for forgiveness because if I were you, I would never have done what you did to me. I would never stoop that low. I would never be that vicious. I would never be that cruel. In other words... One of the reasons why it's so hard for many of us to forgive is because we assume that we're somehow so much better than the person who harmed us. Or simply another way to put it, that this person who harmed us is the worst possible human being because I would never do what you've done to me. I would never have done what you did to my parents. I would never have done. In other words, you kind of create this distance between yourself and that person by Deluding yourself into thinking that you are somehow categorically different, that you're somehow superior, or they're somehow implicitly inferior to you. And so as a result, because you have this idea that I'm not as bad as you, I don't need to forgive you because you are explicitly wicked. You are explicitly heinous. I mean, why do you think the king needs to remind the servant, this wicked servant, of his forgiveness, right? 
because this dude thought that he didn't deserve what he got from this fellow servant. How dare you owe me a, a, a hundred denarii? If I was you, I would never stoop to your level. Uh, hello, do you not remember what the king just did for you, what I did for you? Right Here you have this fellow servant who owed you a hundred denarii, but here you are owing me 10,000 talents. Here is this fellow servant who is a servant of yours, a peer, but here I am, your king, your superior, and you dare owe me much more than what this guy owed? Right? He's trying to say, wake up. Do you really think that you're not as bad as this guy? Do you really think you cannot stoop as low? You already stooped lower than him. You are far worse than this guy. How dare you think? that you're somehow better than him, that you couldn't be as wicked or as bad as he is. Let me tell you now, if there's someone in your life who's been asking for your forgiveness, but you've been so reluctant because you think, you know what, I can't because what you did was especially heinous, assuming I could never do what you've done, think again. And if you hold on to that mindset, I'm sorry to say, you're like this wicked servant and you are in danger of possibly telling God, that maybe you're not a genuine believer at all, that you have not really understood the gospel. Listen to how one theologian up at Yale University, Miroslav Wolf, what he says about this. He writes this quote, forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous inhumanity and into the sphere of shared humanity and transform oneself from the sphere of proud innocence and into the sphere of common sinfulness. What's he saying? He's saying the reason why you will not forgive is somehow you categorically immunize yourself into thinking that you could ever be as wicked or as bad as the person who wronged you and therefore you feel justified, you feel like you have the warrant to withhold forgiveness. And Jesus says, no, no, if you do, then you are deluded. He says, look, there are going to be legitimate times where you cannot forgive someone because they refuse to acknowledge the legitimate grievances you have against them. But one of the reasons it should never be why you withhold forgiveness is because you just assume that you're somehow better, that you're somehow different, that you're not capable of being that wicked in terms of the wickedness that you received as a victim. That's what he's saying. So, recap. Three things so far that we covered in terms of biblical forgiveness. Number one, it's unavoidable. Forgiveness is an unavoidable thing. Number two, it assumes that you have the right to have legitimate grievances against people. And number three, as I just stated, forgiveness always assumes that you're just as capable of being as wicked and as cruel as the person who is cruel and wicked to you. But now let's move on to the final thing that biblical forgiveness is, and that is the purpose of forgiveness you know forgiveness is so in vogue in our culture today you turn on the tv you watch uh, old footages of oprah you watch dr phil you watch dr oz they're always talking about forgiveness all the time and one of the things that they always say in terms of why we should forgive is because of some sort of pseudo therapeutic reason by saying things like oh you need to forgive people because if you hold that in it's gonna be so toxic to your soul you need to just release it so you're no longer imprisoned by the anger and the fury i mean case in point just a few years ago dr phil invited tyler perry for those of you who don't know he's the award-winning director and actor who popularized or made popular his broadway show medea you know the ang- diaries of a mad angry black woman you guys seen those movies <laughs> hilarious right 
And one of the things that uh, Dr. Phil says is like, you know, a lot of your movies emphasize this notion of forgiveness. There's a theme of forgiveness all throughout your, your movies. And, and why is the case? Why is forgiveness so important to you? And this is what Tyler Perry said. He says, quote, if you have all this for unforgiveness in your heart for situations, it can sit inside of you and make you someone else. So I know how important it is to forgive for yourself. <laughs> there it is. According to our culture, the purpose of forgiveness is self-interest. It's for your own good, right? It's a very insular, self-interested, self-driven kind of agenda, right? But Jesus says, that's not the purpose of forgiveness. In fact, he tells us what the purpose of forgiveness is in verse 33. Listen to what he says. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Here Jesus, or the king, excuse me, the king is asking his wicked servant this question, but in reality, Jesus is using him to teach us the purpose of forgiveness. What is it? Have you ever wondered why this king would be willing to forgive the debt of this wicked servant? I mean, this dude owes so much money. That's a lot of money. Do you know how many more programs? Do you know how many more soldiers this king could have? You know, 193,000 years of wages. Do you know how many more, you know, resources he could provide for his future prince and princess's children to further the work of his kingdom? Why would this king be willing to forgive this servant of this vast amount of money? What could be more valuable to this king than the money that this wicked servant owed? Jesus tells us, transformation, transformation. Listen again to the question. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? What is the king saying? You're supposed to be like me, right? I am your king. You are my servant. You, as a servant, a faithful servant, is one who imitates me, who thinks like me, who feels like me, who forgives like me, right? And if we remember this king represents God, that is what Jesus is saying. The purpose of why God forgives you in Jesus Christ isn't so that you can get out of hell after you die. That's not your hell out of ticket card and therefore I'm just going to keep on sinning because I got a free pass to heaven. No, the purpose of why God forgives is so that you can change, so that you can be transformed to be like your king, to be like Jesus. Which means the way in which you properly forgive the people in your life is by following the model that God has given to us through the work of the gospel. Here's the question. How does God forgive us? What is the ways in which God forgives us through his son, Jesus? Well, there are three things I want to highlight. First, God forgives us even when he doesn't feel like it. Do you remember what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed, right? After having supper with his disciples, he goes to the garden of Gethsemane. And what does he say to his father? Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass before me. You know what he's saying? I don't feel like dying. I don't feel like going to the cross. I don't feel like being the savior substitute of the people who you have written in the book of life eons ago. I don't feel like doing this, God, to the point where he was like sweating beads of blood. That's how much he didn't want to do it. I mean, how much do you not want to do something to the point where you're sweating beads of blood, right? I mean, my son, he gets so angry that his nose starts running. I mean, how much more do you have to not want to do something to the point where you're sweating blood? And yet, what does Jesus say? Not my will, but your will be done. Did Jesus feel like going to the cross? Did Jesus, in a nutshell, feel like forgiving us? No, but he did anyway. 
which means as his followers, as imitators of Christ, we forgive not on the basis of whether or not we feel like doing it, but because we know that's what our Heavenly Father calls us to do, because that is his will, not my will, right? So he forgives even when he doesn't feel like it. Number two, God unconditionally offers forgiveness of sins. God unconditionally offers the forgiveness of sins. Now, hear me when I say this. I didn't say God unconditionally forgives people, but he unconditionally offers to forgive people. Do you remember what Jesus prayed as he's dying on the cross in Luke 23, as he's praying to the Father? What does he say on behalf of the people who are crucifying him? What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Question, did all the people that he prayed for get forgiven and end up in heaven? Did all the people responsible for Jesus' death on the cross end up in heaven? No. Some of them are in hell right now as we speak, but yet Jesus still freely, unconditionally offered forgiveness, right? And that is the same mindset that we need to have as well. Look, if there are people in your life who will not acknowledge grievances that they've done against you to where you cannot forgive, you don't take that to be like, oh, well, if you don't want my forgiveness, fine, and then live your life. No, what God calls you to do is to always freely offer the opportunity, unconditionally always offer the opportunity to forgive. No matter how many years pass, no matter how much it, it hurts to do so, I mean, after all, Jesus is doing this while he's dying on the cross. It's agony, right? You always leave the door open. You always send that email. You always text. You always give that letter through your parents by saying, hey, I haven't talked to you in years, but I still want to be in relationship with you. And I still want to forgive you. Will you take it? You always need, as followers of Jesus, always unconditionally give the opportunity to forgive. One of the worst things that you can do is to allow the person who has wronged you to assume that because so much time has passed that the opportunity for you to forgive them has also passed. Never. As followers of Jesus, you always offer unconditionally, freely, without any sort of conditions, the opportunity for them to ask for your forgiveness and you pray for it and you cry over it and you wish for it for all your might. That's what Jesus is saying. That's how God forgives us. He unconditionally offers for us his forgiveness. And then finally, the third way God forgives us is that forgiveness always has a goal, which is a restored, fully reconciled relationship. In the Bible, there's never an instance where God forgives somebody but doesn't become that person's heavenly father. It doesn't happen. When God forgives, that person is now a saint. When God forgives, that person now has fellowship with this person, right? And this is something we need to understand because some of us have been taught that you can forgive someone and yet not have a restored relationship with that person. I mean, there was another brother in college that I remember had an abusive father, right? And he came to a point where he felt like he needed to forgive, but then he told his father, Dad, I forgive you, but as far as I'm concerned, you can never be my dad again. Sorry to say, that's not biblical forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness always has as its goal of a restored relationship. That's why God forgives you. God doesn't forgive you just to forgive you and not have the relationship that comes with that forgiveness. No, forgiveness always has reconciliation. It always has a restored relationship. To where if you're at a place, therefore, where you say to someone in your life, hey, I forgive you, but we're never going to have the relationship we ever had before. I don't know if you really understand biblical forgiveness. 
Now, it's one thing if they're not willing to meet the conditions and to regain trust to have that restored relationship, right? But if on your end you're saying, we're done. You do you. I do me. Everything, everything prior to this, I've forgiven. I've forgotten. But let's go our separate ways. That is not how God forgives. That is not how he forgives. And if that's how you forgive, then you're not like your king. So there you have it. The three things of how God forgives. He forgives us in those ways. And these goals meet the purpose of forgiveness, which is to be like the one who has forgiven you. Now, NCF, here's my question. Consider your preconceived notion of forgiveness before this sermon and compare it to what Jesus is teaching us here in this passage. Let me ask you, does it match? Does it match? If it does, praise God, keep doing what you're doing. If it doesn't, are you willing to submit to what your king is telling you to do right now? Are you willing and are you going to obey your king in following the pattern of forgiveness that he commands you? He doesn't give you advice to or the option to, but commands you to follow in the way in which he has forgiven you. I want to end my message by giving some practical next steps and just three things that I think we need to carefully consider. Now, I know this is hard. It's hard for me. Because there are people in my life that I need to forgive and I still haven't yet, right? But three things that I think we need to consider. Number one, accept Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, but today's message resonated with you to where you realize you need to be forgiven of your sins, right? Then go to God right now and ask God to be your king by openly acknowledging the legitimate grievances that he has against you and confess those sins before him and then cling to Jesus and know that because Jesus has died on the cross for your sins, you and God are fully reconciled. I also want to address you Christians in here. Some of you in here who think you are Christians but actually have not asked God to forgive you of your sins because you just assume that because you grew up going to church, because you've always gone to Sunday school, that you and God are good and you never actually openly acknowledge and confess your sins. And you just assume you have this quasi-forgiven, reconciled relationship with God. I'm sorry to say, you may not. And it could be evidence in the fact that you refuse to forgive the people in your life. Take an honest look and see, do you really understand the gravity of the grievances that God has against you because of your sins? And then fly to Jesus and go to him. Number two, write out the names of people who have sinned against you. Write out their names, because I know you're thinking about them right now, right? And ask the following questions. Has this person asked for my forgiveness, but I refuse to do so? Has this person who has wronged me refused to acknowledge their sins against me and just demand I forgive them and I just did or just pretended it didn't happen? Have I allowed the three ways God's forgiven me in Jesus to be the pattern of how I forgive? I really feel like you need to ask yourselves these kinds of questions so that you can really clarify and therefore clearly set the path of what you need to do in terms of your relationships. Number three. Share some of your answers to question two and get in those Oikos groups. Pastor James just said a moment ago in the announcements that only 62 of you guys are in Oikos groups, which means the remainder 60 to 70 of you guys are not. And you are really depriving yourself of some much needed resources for giving you the strength and the encouragement and accountability you need to live out this call of a forgiven life. So if you're in an Oikos, share some of these answers and pray, ask for prayer, ask for accountability. And if you're not an oikos, get into one now 
And if there isn't one in your region, volunteer to be a leader. <laughs> Pastor James will make you one. Right? I got to tell you right now, folks, this world needs this from the church. Not only because people out there need to be forgiven or they need to forgive, but there's a lot of false prophets out there teaching some false teaching about what forgiveness is when it's really not. Basically, they're falling into the sin of Vicini. I think you're using the word in a way that shows you don't know the word at all, basically. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Let's not fall into that pattern and therefore in risk our testimony and our prophetic role in this world of being a blessing. Will you take up that challenge? Will you take on that mantle of being like your king, our king, and forgive the people whom God has called you to forgive? Let's pray. Father, as we really wrestle through and struggle with all the things that you teach us in this parable, Father, we pray that you would help us to really move forward in faith and to not follow the pattern of the wicked servant, but instead follow the pattern of the faithful servant, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, you were the greatest servant of all. For you were the one who was owed much from us, where you could have choked us, you could have killed us, you could have imprisoned us in our sins, and yet, as the great king you are, you released us from our debt. You have forgiven us. And so, Lord, we pray that that would wake us up in such a way that we would not fall into the delusion of a wicked servant, but instead follow the pattern of our great king. Oh God, would you help us to live this out, especially for those of my brothers and sisters in here who are struggling even now as they think of the, the, the faces, the names of people who they know you have called us to forgive. God, we need your help. and We cannot do it on our own strength. Oh God, would you help us to do this? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.